Hey everyone! Today we're going to be talking about another book called Morris, which is by E. M. Forster, and this has a lot of connections to a book that we previously talked about last time, which was the Uncensored Picture of Dorian Gray by Oscar Wilde. We're going to begin with a short trailer of a movie that was based on this book. Here it is. You're Durham, aren't you? Yes. You're living in college now. I have seen you, though. Paul, isn't it? Mother, this is Morris Hall. Welcome to Pendleton, Mr. Hall. Every human soul has, at some stage, beheld an excellent being. You'll understand that I don't have to explain. Understand what? That I love you. You and I are risking everything we have. We've got to change. There are other ways to be happy. Windows in the sun, I think I see you. Clive Durham is engaged to be married. Going I have a private notion he's in love. Glad to see you down again so soon, sir. Did you ever know that you were I do begin to see what you mean. He's got me in his power. I'm walking on a volcano. I'm an unspeakable, the Oscar Wilde sort. You must know that to be alone with you hurts me. And I do. Thank you resist the return of this obsession. Durham, I love you. I think I have always. So yes, let's begin with the questions. Yes, definitely. It, it, it is such a wonderful story and a wonderful film. I, I really love the trailer as well. I think it summarizes a lot of the themes and characters that we're going to be exploring, especially that line I heard about Oscar Wilde. Exactly, exactly. Yes, we are going to talk in more detail about all of that. Mm -hmm. So first of all, what can you tell us about the plot of the book? The book is about a young gentleman from the English middle class named Maurice Hall, who is looking for fulfillment and for love. He finds it during his studies at Cambridge in the person of Clive Durham. Clive is the one who introduces him to classical writings that were censored during their classes, such as Plato's Symposium, and to all these um, ideas and these, this bold philosophy about platonic love and homosexuality. But um, for all his intellect and apparent rebelliousness, Clive is the one who, after beautiful years of relationship, turns out to be the one who succumbs to social pressure eventually, and he marries a woman. And he calls himself cured of homosexuality, and he breaks up with Morris. This leaves Morris heartbroken, and um, he, it throws him into depression and he ranges between passivity and rage, he even contemplates suicide, and then decides instead to try to treat his affliction through interventions of hypnosis, which is one of the common treatments at the time. 
but this goes poorly as expected. And um, instead he goes to visit Clive and his wife. He still has this sort of uh, ill desire to be around Clive, even though it still hurts him so much. But doing this, he meets one of his servants, the gamekeeper Alex Scudder, who is a voluble young man of the working class, and the two gradually fall in love. And what is fantastic about this story is that it has a happy ending. And this is, this is one of the things that, uh, that is really important about it. It was very rare at the time to have this kind of homosexual love story with a happy ending. Mm-hmm. Even today, a lot of people complain that there's too many tragic homosexual love stories. You know, the implication being that if you are queer, you can't find everlasting happiness. Well, most, no, I wouldn't say most, but a lot of mainstream heterosexual love stories have a happy ending. That is true. That is true. And in 1913, when the book was written, this was true all the more. It, mm-hmm. it would have been unheard of. Mm-hmm. So it is very groundbreaking in that respect. Definitely, definitely, yes. So how does it differ from style from the picture of Dorian Gray that we discussed last time? Apart from the subject matter that coincides in, in certain ways, uh, they're extremely different, even though they are written only 23 years apart. But um a lot of things had changed. Uh, so more is more of a slice of life. It doesn't have the embellished narrative, the philosophy and symbolism and mysticism that Dorian Gray has. Because uh, as, as we remember, Oscar Wilde writes in the literary current of aestheticism, which, which require this uh, embellished narratives. Uh, while Forster does not, he, he approaches a very realistic style. So um, his novel is in a way simpler and at the same time more focused on psychology and on characters and uh, social behaviors. So as well, we definitely do not have the darkness of Dorian Gray and not the negative human nature portrayed there either. Uh, Morris is an innocent and sweet love story, but it has more psychological commentaries and it is more explicit exactly because of it. And of mm-hmm. course, the happy ending is, uh, is the, 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 one, the element that makes the greatest difference. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And I would say that it's more explicitly homosexual because, you know, they're actually in a relationship and one of them actually ends up with another man, right? At the end, the happy ending. Exactly. And, and um, Morris's sexuality is explained in great detail because it is a Bildungsroman. It begins when Morris is 14 and it ends when he eventually finds his, we can assume, everlasting love. So it spans a few years and it says in great detail how he was uh, perceiving his homosexuality when he was at puberty, how he was perceiving it uh, when he went to university and met Clive and how he influenced his views on it. And then uh, during his time of depression, like we've discussed before, uh, he, he begins to, to have a sort of a feeling, a, a feeling of guilt, which he had not had before, which, and then this is to change again. Once he really finds love, it sees that he doesn't need to change mm-hmm. that and still be happy. 
Mm -hmm. So it has a very wide, wide range of emotions and they are so in-depth explained mm -hmm. compared to Oscar Wilde, which uh, well, whose picture of Dorian Gray is more focused on um, plot and the, the has that mysticism of it all. Mm -hmm. And Dorian himself wasn't explicitly homosexual. Oh yes, definitely. The, the only character was uh, the painter Basil Hallward. Dorian himself wasn't really. Mm -hmm, exactly. And it was never reciprocated because it was only the painter who was homosexual and had feelings for Dorian. But Dorian, I don't think he ever realized that, right? Yes, I don't think so. Or, or at least he did not reciprocate. And uh, also their, their takes, their views on, uh, on how a relationship should be between men were very different. Uh, but the book does not elaborate so much upon it. And one of the, the main reasons why uh, this happened must surely be because Oscar Wilde actually published his story. So he was intending it for the audience of its time, the, that strict Victorian audience, while Forrester did not intend it to be published, just wrote the book for himself and for his close friends. So this is why it was so bold and so pioneering at the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe he had uh, written it in order to publish it then in 1914 when he finished it, maybe it would have looked different. Maybe it would have been much censored. Mm -hmm. But how can you censor it? I mean, just like Dorian Gray, you can't really censor a lot of the things. How do you censor an explicitly homosexual love story? I guess you would just not write it, right? <laughs> that's, that's how you censor it <laughs> that is true i think morris is really uncensorable yes you're very <laughs> so can you tell us a little bit about the characters definitely and here i'm also going to read in Force's own words because he has um uh he, he has a few notes at the end of the novel um where where he describes his characters and he says that um he he when he um, built the character of Morris, he wanted to make him someone very different from himself. So he made it someone handsome, healthy, bodily attractive, mentally torpid, not a bad businessman, and rather a snob. Into this mixture, I quote, I dropped an ingredient that puzzles him, wakes him up, torments him, and finally saves him. His surroundings exasperate him by their very normality. Mother, two sisters, a comfortable home, a respectable job, gradually turn out to be hell. So this is Morris. He is repeatedly uh, called in the novel as a uh, well, <laughs> mentally torpid or rather slow-minded young man. He's not, he's not stupid, but he is a bit, uh, a bit oblivious to his own uh, feelings and to his own opinions. So it, it takes him a while to figure things out. This is why um, he, he knew that there was something different about him than the world told him that he should be even as he was a teenager, but it is not until his university years that he actually figures out that he's gay. So it takes him that long to, to, to really name it. And it was Clive who opens his eyes. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us more about Clive? Exactly. Uh, yes, um, I'm going to read again. 
I quote, if Morris is suburbia, Clive is Cambridge. Knowing the university or one corner of it pretty well, I produced him without difficulty and got some initial hints for him from a slight academic acquaintance. The calm, the superiority of outlook, the clarity and the intelligence, the assured moral standards, the delicacy that did not mean frailty, the boldness, the blend of lawyer and squire, all lay in the direction of that acquaintance, though it was I who gave Clive his Hellenic temperament and flung him into Morris's affectionate arms. Once there, he took charge. He laid down the lines on which the unusual relationship should proceed. He believed in platonic restraint and induced Morris to acquiesce, which does not seem to me at all unlikely. Morris at this stage is humble and inexperienced and adoring. He is the soul released from prison and he is asked by his deliverer to remain chaste. He obeys. Consequently, the relationship lasts for three years. Precarious, idealistic and peculiarly English. What Italian boy would have put up with it? <laughs> it's very, very nicely said because it refers to the fact that, um, well, Clive was, was the real intellectual. He was the erudite, the philosopher among them, and their temperaments were also very different. But as we will see later on, when I'm going to quote what both of the, of the young men think about each other, uh, they are exactly attracted to these differences between them. So um, um, the, this particular passage refers to, to the fact that Clive believes in that platonic love ideal where the attraction between two men should not become physical, but it should rather be a source of inspiration and an an intellectual and aesthetic pleasure, but nothing more than that. And uh, even though Morris would be quite eager to, to be more physical, it is Clive who, who really sets the pace and who says, no, we, we will not go there. One does not do that. So what basically their relationship looks like during those three years is that they know that they have someone who is there for them, someone who loves them, someone they can talk to. So they are best friends, but they know in their hearts that they are loved. And this is it. <laughs> this is that they go no further than this. There is one scene where they kiss, but afterwards it is just this. And it is all right for them, at least at the time, uh, they, they were so in love and Morris was so, um, was admiring Clive so much that he it, it did not occur to him that it should be different. Mm -hmm. I see. What changes it? Um, I think it was. I think he he became afraid because uh, Clive Durham was a bit from from a bit higher background than Morris was. He was a bit of a lower country nobility and uh, he's he's a lawyer and he wants to be a judge and uh, he has a reputation to to maintain and uh, gradually as as time passes he 
he, he succumbs to this pressure. He, he's told by his family that he has to marry. He realizes that he needs the, um, he, he needs uh, votes from, uh, from the community that he lives in and he wants to have a good reputation. Um, so yes, he, um, he decides to marry. And, and this is why they, they have to break up. Mm -hmm. And it is life that, that breaks up with Morris, of course. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. Yeah. So this is also a story about social class, not only about, you know, homosexuality and Hellenism. Yes, yes, exactly. Very much. Because uh, even though Clive and Morris both come from, well, they're middle-class gentlemen, uh, we have the third character who is Alex Scudder who is very, very different from Clive. They are opposites in so many respects. And Morris, who is a bit of a snob, uh, does not, well, <laughs> uh, you would not have imagined that he would end up with a servant because the things that he admired in, in Clive were exactly his, um, uh, his intellectual nature and, and, and the wonderful things that they could talk about together. Uh, this is one of the main components. But when he meets the gamekeeper, Alex Scudder, um, yes, he does find him attractive, but there are some dissensions between them. But those things that, uh, well, mostly because, uh, uh, because Morris is snobbish and does not treat him very well, because as it says repeatedly in the novel, uh, gentlemen were supposed to be arrogant to servants and everyone was, uh, you know, servants. Uh, on, on the one hand, of course, they were annoyed with this, but there was this notion that uh, if, if this gentleman is arrogant, it means that uh, he is, um, he will go very well in life, you know? So there, there was a bit of an admiration. This is how uh, society wanted to, uh, to, uh, to portray the, the social class differences. But then Alex Cutter is very different. Mm -hmm. he, um, uh, he does not uh, want to, to be seen as, inferior in any way to Morris or to his master Clive or to anyone else and he says it repeatedly and and they do have a few dissensions and we're going to get a bit more into that with quotes as well mm -hmm. um so yes in total the themes are love social norms morality Hellenism and homosexuality and social class does the theme of Hellenism affect Alex and Morris? I know, of course, it affects Clive and Morris because it's Clive's ideal, but does Morris also take up the ideal after he breaks up with Clive? Um, well, not really. Clive is Hellenism through and through. And uh, it is he that introduces Morris to, to Plato and to this ideal view on homosexuality, whereas Morris's approach is more, more natural, maybe more, well, more, more physical, I think. And um, Alec is very much the opposite, whereas Clive and Morris are, well, 
virgins that they are so inexperienced. <laughs> is, is really not so. Um, he's also bisexual. And this is interesting because, um, well, even though, um, well, someone like Dorian Gray was apparently bisexual or Lord Henry Wotton perhaps um, in, in that book as well, bisexuality, I think it was even more misunderstood than homosexuality because uh, at the time, I don't think it was uh, really taken seriously as an actual sexuality. Mm -hmm. just seen as people who want to try different things, right? Mm -hmm. But even this is really nicely explained in, in Alex's own words, because Morris is the one who does not understand. But Alec, um, Alec actually brags at one point when they are sort of teasing, a bit arguing with each other. And, and he says that, uh, of course, I like women. It is natural to like women. I could get married tomorrow if I want to. And Morris does not understand how this happens. How can someone like both men and women? It's really <laughs> puzzling to him. So, but um, it was the first time Alec was with a gentleman. This is what he tells Morris uh, mm -hmm. after they start being together. And this difference in social class comes up once more when they have this conversation. Because uh, also during the time of Oscar Wilde, and this is something that still happens 23 years later, homosexuality was uh, sort of viewed as a vice of the upper classes who are just bored and who wanted to try new sensations. And I guess that uh, the picture of Dorian Gray does not really help to change this mentality, right? Uh, well, quite quite contrarily, uh, it's, it, it, it reinforces that mentality. Well, uh, Morris does the opposite because here it is definitely not a vice. It is such an, an innocent love. It, it is not materialized, not even through kisses, you know? So it, it is as, as pure as it can be. It is not uh, described as lust it, in, in the, well, with Clive, I mean, his relationship with Clive. And then it, it naturally develops into a normal relationship when, when he meets uh, Alec. Mm -hmm. I see. So it seems like Clive is the one who is kind of using the Hellenistic model to model his own actions and maybe control himself in a way. Oh yes, yes, definitely. I think that it was it was in fact his own uh, uh, well, his own restraints. He's the kind of person who, uh, on the one hand, he, he he could look into his own soul really well, and he was the one who knew that he was gay all along. He mm -hmm. never had any doubts about it. But also, it was it is also he who is more uh, or 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 in whom uh, social pressure is more deeply rooted. Mm -hmm. So this maybe this is the why he he constructed this uh, Hellenistic ideal, or rather, this is why the ideal found echo in him and not really in Morris. Mm, that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, how is this? Oh, sorry. Uh, I think that he has this uh, uh, pride of his social class and he would think that putting it into practice is something for the lower classes and maybe for mm. the upper classes, but not for an intellectual. 
That makes sense. And maybe he also knew all along that his relationship wouldn't last very long. So he doesn't want to like, you know, be too attached. So this is why he uses this Hellenism as a model. Yes, yes, that is very true, yes. Yes. So how has the book influenced your characters, styles, and plots? Because I noticed that how Clive sees, you know, the Hellenistic model is kind of similar to how Ingvar kind of sees Aiden, even though Ingvar is not really that exposed to classical literature, at least not until he meets Aiden. That is true. Um, and as this kind of ideal fits Clive's personality very well, it definitely fits Ingvar's. Um, in the same way. And I think that it fits their temper. So if, if Clive is anything like Ingvar, and uh, well, he's much warmer than Ingvar to begin with. But if, if their tempers are anything similar, then I guess for Clive, it was the same as it is with my character, because, um, well, Ingvar doesn't really like to be uh, open about his feelings and physically close to people. He, he mm -hmm. generally has some, some restraints, which, which I, I'm sure come from his upbringing in, in a similar way to Clive's, because maybe Ingvar was not so much interested in social pressure or so much affected by it, but he, he was definitely affected by the way he was raised. And uh, of course the societies are very different, uh, but, um, well, due to these uh, due to these factors, uh, Ingvar would very much prefer to to have this kind of uh, idealistic um, respect and you know mm -hmm. inspiration and just talk about intellectual things with someone and to know that that person is there, but not to feel uh, the, the the pressure of having to interact with them on a really physical and emotional level because uh, this really um, makes him uh, very insecure you know whenever he he realizes that now I have to do something now I have to say something so he would rather just not go there mm, I see yeah do you think Clive doesn't have the same complex though like I don't really feel that Clive necessarily wants to use Hellenism to, because he doesn't know what to say, right? Like, I think he's more talkative than Ingvar is. I think he's more okay with being closer to people. It might just be because of the societal thing for Clive and also the expectation to get married and not become too involved in a homosexual relationship before that. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, that is true. Uh, yes, definitely uh, Clive does not have the same respect uh, the same restraints, sorry, uh, faced with uh, in interaction with people, yes, definitely. No, he is, uh, emotionally, he is very open, Clive, because it is he who first uh, tells Maurice that he loves him. Ingvar mm -hmm. would never take the initiative, and I don't really imagine him saying, I love you to someone. How does Ingvar find his own relationship in the past with Eolf? Because Eolf is not someone you would really talk about intellectual things to, except for maybe like the herbs and stuff. But does that count as intellectual? Because <laughs> it's not really philosophy. Yeah, <laughs> I think, uh, well, 
in, in this context of Forrester, uh, Eolf is more of an Alex Scudder than he is a Clive, definitely, because he is from the lower classes, but unlike Alec, who, who really embraces his working class empowerment, uh, Eolf sort of wants to to pretend he's upper class. So, um, but but yes, in, in manners, Eolf is, is not as um, well uh, chiseled, you know, as, as uh, Clive is with, with manners and with, uh, but, but at the same time, there is something intellectual in his philosophy, because Eolf has this really outstanding philosophy about uh, about love, about connections with other people, and uh, he he builds this personality. And this is what Ingvar likes about him. Even though they do not resonate in that respect, he can appreciate. So. Mm-hmm. He is a philosopher, if, if we think about it, not in the same way as Clive's and not in the intellectual way. Mm-hmm. I see. And do he's you, witty as well. <laughs> that's true, yes. And do you think maybe like Ingvar's particular preference for someone to be more intellectual and you know calm and dignified, did that kind of evolve after he met Eolf and you know he couldn't be with him anymore? Do you think like his standards changed after Eolf? Hmm, that, that's a good question. Um, well, I think that Eolf is the odd one out, in fact. I mean, I, I think that Ingvar always had this ideal, but were it not for Eolf, who was so different and and so, uh, and, and, and for whom uh, interactions with other people uh, came so natural, Ingvar would not have discovered that he could actually have a relationship. He would have stayed alive all his life. I mean, mm. in a way he does anyway. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. But I don't think he gets married, right? Ingvar? Yeah. Um, well, that, we will see more about that in Sons of Disobedience. Spoiler, right? <laughs> Yeah, it's it is kind of a spoiler, yes. But mm-hmm. uh, to to answer the question partially, no, he does not. Uh, he does not uh, care so much about social pressure. Definitely not in the way that Clive does. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's because Ingvar is someone who is so self-contained. Like he just does what he wants. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's very strong-willed. Yes, yes, yes. He is. He is more like. Uh, he's more in the way that Clive seemed to be at first when he comes with, when he opens Morris's eyes. Mm-hmm. Then he really seems bold and he seems not to care about what people think. And he, in a way, he changes radically, at least in Morris's eyes and in the eyes of the reader, he changes radically. There was something in him always that, that led him down this path. Mm. I think but it's because... Sorry, yes. Oh, sorry. Yeah, okay. Yeah, your voice got muffled for, for some reason. So that was, yeah, I think it was like a lag or something. But yeah, go ahead. Um, but for Morris, it, uh, it, it really comes as a terrible blow because it had not expe- he had not expected it to end. And he had not expected Clive to, to break up with him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think maybe what was happening was that Clive... Like when he was in university, he was very idealistic 
and he thought he could, you know, be very willful and just do what he wanted. But after he went into the real world, right, he realized he couldn't keep it up. Like, you know, oh, it's just too much the pressure. So he had to give in. Exactly. Yes, that, that is very well put. He, he, he could just not stay the eternal philosopher because he had to deal with actual life. He had to get a job. He had to run his uh, estate. So that would just not do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's because of that giant change in his life from student to the real world, right? How does that affect Morris? Do you think you know, changing, like graduating from university changes Morris too? I think it makes him a more, you know, maybe bored with life and exasperated, just like uh, Forrester says in his own words, because uh, he becomes a stockbroker and he has this <laughs> pretty boring job. But as long as he is with Clive, he doesn't care. He doesn't notice it. But once Clive breaks up with him, everything really becomes hell. So it, it becomes terrible to just get up day after day and go to work and, and not feel lonely. He, he was feeling extremely, extremely lonely, as we will see when, I, when I'll share the quotes with you. Mm-hmm. And that's when he sinks into depression, right? Yes, exactly. Yeah, mm-hmm. it, it is precisely that moment. So Morris was written in 1913 and was only published in 1971, right after Forrester's death. How does he explain his decision not to publish it during his life? Um, I will answer with uh, another quote in E.M. Forrester's own words. Um, And it it is exactly the fact that it is a happy love story. And I quote, happiness is its keynote, Morris's keynote. It has made the book more difficult to publish. If it ended unhappily with a lad dangling from a noose or with a suicide pact, all would be well, for there is no pornography or seduction of minors. But the lovers get away unpunished and consequently recommend crime. Unless the Wolfenden report becomes law, it will probably have to remain in manuscript. And this was the the law that was eventually passed to decriminalize homosexuality in uh, 1967 in the UK. Mm -hmm. I see. Yeah. Yeah. He had just shown it to a few friends, but he did not, uh, he did not see it published, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. He died earlier. Mm-hmm. That's sad. And was it like his children or who decided to publish it? His estate? Um, no, he, he did not have children. He was not married and he did not have children. So in a way, he did live that life that Clive <laughs> knew, uh, was too afraid to live. And uh, I think we should talk more about his life, actually, because uh, it, it is very interesting. Mm-hmm. So what was his life like? Well, um, it, is, it is interesting that uh, Forrester, well, just like Morris, he never, uh, he always knew that, that he was different in a sense. So he always knew that he was gay, but he did not, did not act upon this until he was 30 something. 
So that was the first time when he had a relationship with a man. And um, interestingly enough, uh, he was very much fascinated with the uh, with the Eastern world. So uh, it was a, during the time of the British Raj. So he, he traveled a lot to India and Egypt and he was um, uh, a secretary, um, a private secretary to the Maharaja. And this is when he um, fell in love with an Indian man who was named Masood. And this man was the inspiration, as, as Forster later said, um, was the inspiration for his protagonist, Dr. Aziz, from a passage to India. So um, he falls in love with this man and follows him to India. And he, he let him know that he loves him, but the man was unfortunately straight and he could not reciprocate. So he, he spends a while, sort of like Morris, just keeps hanging around Clive and his wife, even though he knows nothing else will happen between them. But then um, when he um, is a, a private secretary to the Maharaja, um, he has a relationship with a lower class Indian man. And, and this is the first time he actually acts upon it. And from then on, he, um, he only has relationships with persons with, with men of working classes and this is what leads him to uh, um, to has to have this sort of uh, view on social class which is very well represented in Morris as well as in most of his other books he sees the middle class and the upper classes as extremely hypocritical and very sterile whereas the working classes he sees as more uh, in, in a way more free Maybe he idealizes. I mean, I'm sure he he does idealize it, in in a way. But this is how he sees it. So he uh, he has a relationship with uh, uh, a tram conductor from Egypt when he stays in Egypt, and then finally when he returns to England, he is was with a police officer. Um, who eventually got married, but they did not break up. And they found a way to have this um, friendship with, so uh, Forrester was good friends with the policeman's wife as well. So it was sort of a, I wouldn't really say a triangle because, uh, well, Forrester was just friends with his wife, but she was accepting enough to to share the man with Forrester, and they were <laughs> his good friends for his his last days. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's a really good ending, and I can really see the influence of his personal life on Morris. And do you think he's considered middle class himself, right? Mm, yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, I think he definitely does have this idealization of the working class, but I think it's also, he does this because he wants to compare to all the hypocrisy he's personally experienced. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. That's mm -hmm. So how do you think um, this book's representation of homosexuality differs from contemporary popular representations of homosexuality in modern fiction? Um, well, the, the first uh, thing that we talked about before is the uh, happy ending, which we finally can see again. So I think that from this point of view, and, 
And from the point of view of the narrative technique, which is very much a slice of life, like I said, um, showing his, his thoughts and his emotions at the development of his character and of his sexuality ever since he was a boy, uh, it is so contemporary. I mean, I, I, I don't think it is really distinguishable from something that would be written nowadays, but uh, placed in historical times mm -hmm. that 1913 moment, because in the way that it, it is written, it is so contemporary. Mm -hmm. And he does not shy away from, from a lot of things. It is, like I said, much more explicit than the picture of Dorian Gray, which, which was thought to be so dirty. But it, it is explicit in quite a different way. Um, so, <laughs> yes. Um, but interestingly, uh, I saw some things in, uh, in this book that... I have not really seen in this way in any contemporary fiction. Um, the characters of both Morris and Clive are portrayed as quite misogynistic and it says so explicitly. Um, and this also ties a bit with, well, in part it is uh, the, the result of their upbringing and of their social class and the, the way that the women were uh, pressured to be and the way that the men were pressured to be and the fact that this intellectual ideal that, and the platonic love and everything would be something that only applied to men. So in a way it is their upbringing, but in a way it is also the fact that um, Morris as a gay man, he does not really um, have that, you know, that, well, uh, the way in which he views women, he doesn't really understand them. So he does, because he doesn't feel, uh, it doesn't come to him naturally to, to behave with them in one way or another, he relies on the models that he sees around him. So he thinks, how should a real man act? What would women like me to do in this moment? And of course, he is very wrong. And there is an interesting scene that um, I'm going to read about uh, where he is with a... Um, with a young woman. It is during one of those moments when he wants to, uh, well, he wants to, to try to sort, sort of to test himself to see if he's really gay or not. Because this is before it really, um, uh, before he starts being with, uh, with Clive. And it says, sorry, one moment. Okay. Uh, so, so he's the, she, he has this, this encounter with the young woman and uh, he makes advances towards her and I quote, she tried to stop him but he was insensitive and did not know that he annoyed her. He had read that girls always pretended to stop men who complimented them. He haunted her. When she excused herself from riding with him on the last day, he played the domineering male. So because things do not come natural to him, he relies on, on what society says that he should be. And mm -hmm. it, is, it, is quite, it is quite a terrible scene. Of course, nothing happens because he is a gentleman, but he, he quite bullies her as, as we can see here. And I have not really seen this, this portrayed. I think that um, 
most portrayals of um, of a, a gay men nowadays is more like an you know ally of of women. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> you know what I mean. But here it is not really the same. Those were different times as well. And and as I said, it is not uh, really his sexuality, but more the influence of his age. But he definitely lacks sort of uh, a sympathy for women in in that way. You know, Mm -hmm. this is how it is portrayed in the book. And it says that uh, because he did not have... um, well, he lives with his mother and with his two sisters, and his mother is quite dull. Really <laughs> dull-minded. She's funny. She's a really funny character. She, uh, she, she's a great source of comic relief in the book. But it says at one point that um, he did not find women interesting at all. That because his mother and sisters were always there, he sort of took them for granted and uh, either them or the furniture, it was all the same to him, you know? (laughs) (laughs) He doesn't say it in these words, but this is the general idea, you know? So he doesn't really take them seriously. Mm -hmm. uh, This was, I think, shaped by the relationship that Forrester had with his own mother because he stayed with his mother and took care of her all, all his life. And he says that, uh, I mean, he, he he lived with his mother for as long as she lived and took care of him when she was uh, ill, which was mostly all of the time. And he says at one point that this is one of the reasons why he eventually stopped writing. So mm-hmm. he sort of blames the home situation for his uh, inspiration running out. So maybe this was already 1913 reflecting upon the way he he portrays his uh, the relationships of his uh, characters with their own families because both Clive and for and sorry and Morris have a mother and two sisters. Oh yeah, it is very autobiographical autobiographical in that respect. I think so. I think so, yes. Mm-hmm. How about from his biographies? What do you think is Forrester's personal attitude towards romantic relationships and sexuality? And how does it compare to that of the three characters of Morris? Since we talked about how his personal life, you know, really in- d- deeply influenced the fact that Morris had a happy ending, as well as the fact that he just so happened to also have two sisters, just like Morris. Mm-hmm. Yes, I think, um, uh, well, I'm sure there is a great deal of Forrester in Morris, especially the part where where he is uh, um, a teenager and he figures out his sexuality and, and the dreams that he has. And uh, um, I, I think that there is a great autobiographical uh, component there as well. But at the same time, Forster states that Morris is very, very different from him as, as a person because he's more, uh, I don't know, manly, if you will, uh, more, as he says, strong and healthy in body and sporty, which is very much the opposite of Forrester himself. Forrester was in this respect more of a Clive uh, because he was of course very interested in in books and 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 being more well i wouldn't say really more lonely because he was friendly but not as easy to open up with other people so i think that in a way he was more like clive but uh his 
uh, well, minus the ending of their relationship, because eventually he did what Morris did. Uh, great loneliness led him to finally accept himself as he was and, and seek out ways to make himself happy. Mm-hmm. I think that's really great. You know, it shows that a lot of the character development in the book reflects his own experiences, which I think, you know, we should later talk about in another podcast episodes, because I think many authors do this. Yes, yes, uh, yes, that is very correct. But um, I think that, well, of course, all of his, all of Forrester's books are, are very much based on his own experience, but on different experiences. But certainly this being the only one that deals with homosexuality, which was his lifelong secret. Of course, that, that part of him was very much poured out into the book. Mm-hmm. So his sexuality was entirely a secret until he died, right? Yes, only his only his friends knew, only his uh, his close friends, and well, he was friends with a lot of writers, including Virginia Woolf, who was also uh, LGBTQ. So this is really sweet, and uh, she was the one of the the people who read Morris. Oh, and um, does she did she also come out as like lesbian, or was it censored as well? Um. Well, I, I don't know much about the life of Virginia Woolf. I just read the the letters between her and her lover, which are really, really touching. But of course, uh, um, well, Mrs. Dalloway is also quite an LGBTQ book, but much more, I wouldn't really say censor, but it is, well, quite toned down compared to Morris, because um, as, as we know, uh, Clarissa Dalloway is a lesbian and um, she's married to a man and uh, she, she keeps coming back to that moment in time in her youth when she kissed a girl. And that was the happiest moment of her life. So definitely that, there was a lot of, of work herself placed into this book in, in a similar way in which Forrester uh, poured out his soul when he wrote Morris. Mm-hmm. So maybe he wasn't as misogynistic as his characters were because a lot of his friends were not only women, but LGBTQ women. Yes, definitely. Yes, mm-hmm. I, I'm sure that this does not reflect in, uh, um, in, in his own life. I mean, sir, I, I don't know what or what it was like when he was younger. Maybe uh, 20-year-old Morris is 20-year-old Forrester in, in certain respects. We don't really know. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Because he was more in the closet, so to speak, until 30-something. <laughs> so I guess when he was in the closet, ironically, he was more misogynistic, maybe to hide the fact that he is homosexual. Maybe, maybe this is speculation just from the characters. I don't know anything of the story. Mm. Yeah. So is there anything else you would want to share about this? And how about the movie? Did you think the movie was a good adaptation of the book? Oh, uh, yes, yes, definitely. We have to talk about the movie and uh, to talk about, uh, to share the quotes with you. And also because uh, I also have to tell you how the book was written, because we did not go into this and it is really interesting. But yes, to to answer the question, um, 
I really loved the movie and I think it was really, really well, well done. And um, well, the, the director certainly knew what, what he was doing and he did a very uh, respectful and close adaptation of the novel. It is basically, um, well, it, it is the same. It has the same vibes. It is just that little things are changed. For example, we have the addition in the film of um, the a sort of a wild DNA character, Lord Risley, who does appear in, um, in the books, but um, well, he, he is very much like Oscar Wilde. He's very witty in conversation. He says outrageous things. He's also gay and a friend of Clive's. But um, in, in the films, at one point, a few years after they finish Cambridge, he is arrested for gross indecency. And there is a trial and there is a huge scandal. And Clive is one of the people who goes to the trial. And uh, just like Oscar Wilde, Lord Risley is um, ostracized and every one of his friends, because he, he used to be surrounded by them, every one of his friends forsakes him. And in the film, this is added perhaps to strengthen Clive's motivation to break up with Morris. Mm -hmm. I think that's a good addition. It really strengthens, so. you know, the importance of why societal expectations was so important to Clive. Exactly, I think so. And especially because in the book, we can see Clive's thoughts, but in the movie, we cannot really show someone's thoughts unless there is a voiceover and there is no voiceover in this one. So I think it was, it was a good idea to show something to, uh, to strengthen his motivations and, and, and to, to get them across to the reader. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, um, it, it was it was a very pioneering book because uh, I, I was reading and the uh, the actors themselves and the the director when when he was still alive was saying that um, it it was met with controversy because it was released in 1987 and it was at the height of. Um, uh, scandal surrounding AIDS because everyone was talking about AIDS and there was terrible uh, hate of, of the gay community because of it at the time. And this is the moment when, when the film Morris was done and people were saying and critics were saying, is this really the good time to show homosexuality as positive? I mean, look at what it has brought to the world, right? AIDS. So, of course, that was terrible. But at the same time, um, they were saying the, I think the director said this, that there were so many gay men who said at that time that um, the, the film changed their life exactly because it was so positive. And they really needed that because it, it was a difficult moment. For, mm -hmm. for yes. And another thing I think that would be really pioneering is the fact that they show LGBTQ people as just normal. You know, they're not some kind of martyr. Oh, you know, this person got killed at the end and we have to fight for gay rights now because he was killed just because he was gay. I think a lot of the times when people talk or portray LGBTQ characters, there's often either, you know, in the olden days, um, you know, they usually either stereotype them very negatively or they turn them into outright villains, right? Or like there's another tendency that's more modern. 
put them on a pedestal and basically turn them into these perfect like heroes that we have to protect. And, you know, they are supposedly symbolizing the struggle against the patriarchy and all of that. But then when you do this, you kind of turn them into symbols, not people. And people don't find it to be good representation, it just becomes moralistic. That, that is very correct. Yes. Yes. And, and like you said, this is this is great about the film that even though it was made back in the 80s or quite a long time ago, uh, it shows it as, as, as something very natural. Mm-hmm. And yes, it was not really, I mean, it's, its main purpose is not visibly to, to make the uh, heterosexual audience very sensitive to, to the, the problems and uh, to uh, make them outraged or something, because there are a lot of, th- a lot of films that do this and, and that deal a lot with uh, oppression and uh, not to mention something as heartbreaking as Philadelphia that, that deals with AIDS. So Morris is very different because it is happy. It, it makes the viewer happy, whether they are heterosexual or not. It, it really makes you happy to watch it. Mm-hmm. Can you share us? Can you share with us the quotes that you have gathered from this book? Uh, yes, sure. Uh, I love this part. Okay, so uh, I selected a few quotes uh, from the beginning of the book and to the end. And um, well, uh, as uh, as we mentioned before, the book starts when Morris is fourteen, and uh, um, he's at school, and he uh, he goes through um, <laughs> a bit of a sex education lesson, <laughs> those sex ed lessons of nineteen oh five, and it, it's really funny because uh, the teacher talks to him about sex in terms of um, Adam and Eve and uh, the it says I'm I'm going to quote to love a noble woman to protect and serve her this was the crown of life um, and all in God's heaven all is right with the world male and female so wonderful and to this Morris responds I think I shall not marry. <laughs> this was so nice. This was his conclusion to everything. The teacher told him about the crown of life, which is the uh, the union between man and woman. And he even draws um, in, in the sand because they are on the seashore, uh, reproductive organs and explains how this takes place. And <laughs> this is Morris's conclusion. <laughs> It, it, it was really nice. It was one of the, the funniest things in the entire book. Um, and then later on, it explains um, the, Morris's blurry consciousness of early teenage years, not yet having found out that he was gay, as, as a symbol of fog and darkness. It repeatedly says, quote, Morris had fallen asleep in the valley of the shadow. And this was the part in, in his teenage years when he felt that he was somewhat attracted towards men, but did not really understand what it meant. And one of the the biggest symbols in the book is the dream that he had when he was about 14. Quote, he scarcely saw a face, scarcely heard a voice. That is your friend. And then it was over, having filled him with beauty and taught him tenderness. He could die for such a friend. He would allow such a friend to die for him they would make any sacrifice for each other and count the world 
nothing, neither death nor distance nor crossness with part them, because this is my friend. Soon afterwards, he was confirmed and tried to persuade himself that the friend must be Christ. But Christ had a mangy beard. Was he then a Greek god, such as illustrates the classical dictionary? Or more probably, he was just a man. And this is a very beautiful symbol, the friend. This is how he refers, he never says lover or anything else. He says that he would like to have a friend. And this is the way he views Clive and the way he will view Alec. And we'll get to that um, shortly. And um, during these teenage years, even when he, he assumed that that friend in the dream would be Christ, uh, this is what he says about these thoughts. <laughs> um, and, and here I see a bit of a similarity with your Sam. I quote, he longed for smut, <laughs> but heard little and contributed less, and his chief indecencies were solitary books. The school library was immaculate, but while at his grandfather's, he came across an unexpurgated marshal and stumbled out in it with burning ears. Thoughts? He had a dirty little collection. Acts? He, dis he desisted from these after the novelty was over, finding that they brought him more fatigue than pleasure. Uh, of course, we, we, we all understand what kind of acts he means, but this is one of the moments when it is really explicit. We find nothing of the sort in Dorian Gray about dirty thoughts and dirty acts, right? No, it's all implied, right? <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> and later on, um, I quote, in school, he began to make a religion of some other boy. When this boy, whether older or younger than himself, was present, Morris would laugh loudly, talk absurdly, and be unable to work. He dared not be kind. It was not the thing, still less to express his admiration in words. And, they adore, and the adored one would shake him off before long and reduce him to sulks. However, he had his revenges. Other boys sometimes worshipped him, and when he realized this, he would shake, off, he would shake them off. The adoration was mutual on one occasion, both yearning for they knew not what, but the result was the same. They quarreled in a few days. So these were the years when he was in the Valley of Shadows. He did not understand what it meant, but it's obvious to the reader. It is. I love that ironic contrast. I think it's dramatic irony, right? Dramatic irony. Yes. <laughs> yes. yes. Yes, exactly. And, and I also like this part where uh, he would sort of bully the boys that he liked because he thought that this was the thing to do. And it says repeatedly that he was a bit bullied when he was a boy. And the more he grew up, he started to bully other people because he said that that was the manly thing to do. <laughs> that makes sense, though. And also the fact that he might be in denial. So this is why he treats his crushes so badly. Yes, exactly. That's very true. Yeah. So, so this is the kind of a, a boy that Morris is. And then we get to see Clive's perspective for one chapter. And now we'll see the, the, the huge contrast. Quote, the boy had always been a scholar, awake to the printed word, and the horrors the Bible had evoked for him were to be laid by Plato. Never could he forget his emotion at first reading the Phaedrus. He saw there his malady described exquisitely, 
calmly as a passion which we can direct like any other towards good or bad. And this is a great difference because he knew what was quote, wrong with him. But uh, at first uh, listening to, well, Chris Christianity and to the Bible, he would blame himself for it. But it, it is said that once he discovered uh, Greek philosophy, he started to, to accept it. And then when he meets Morris, and this is really nice, I, I quote, the man was bourgeois, unfinished and stupid. When Hall, meaning Morris, started teasing him, he was charmed. He liked being thrown about by a powerful and handsome boy. It was delightful too when Hall stroked his hair. The faces of the two people in the room would fade. He leaned back till his cheek brushed the flannel of the trousers and felt the warmth strike through. He was under no illusion on these occasions. He knew what kind of pleasure he was receiving and received it honestly, certain that it brought him no that it brought no harm to either of them. Hall was a man who only liked women. One could tell that at a glance. <laughs> so this was his, well, these are his first impressions of Morris. And then they get to, to talk more openly about it. And, and the key moment is when Clive uh, recommends him to read the symposium during the, the holiday, because um, there is a nice scene in the film and also in the book where they are um, at, during the class of the Dean, who is in New York. <laughs> I, I, when I read the, the book, I was really thinking about uh, Dean Benjamin. <laughs> so um, they are reading from uh, Plato's symposium and they are supposed to, they are reading it in the original and the students are supposed to translate into English live, I mean, just ha have the original and translate it. And, and one student is translating and then the Dean says in this strict and monotonous voice, Omit the references to the unspeakable vice of the Greeks. <laughs> yeah, so this is how he sees it. And then this is what makes Clive and Morris to talk about it. And Clive is outraged. It says that we owe so much to Greek antiquity and, and to omit this, um, which was an essential thing, he says, it, it is to misunderstand Plato completely. And this is the moment when he gives Morris the symposium to read. And then I'm going to quote the moment um, that, that is also uh, in the trailer. Quote, I knew you read the symposium in the VAC, he said in a low voice. Morris felt uneasy. Then you understand without me saying more. How do you mean? Morris is not very perceptive. Again, as you see, he's always like, how do you mean? This is his favorite line. Durham could not wait. People were all around them, but with eyes that had gone intensely blue, he whispered, I love you. Now Morris's reaction. Morris was scandalized, horrified. He was shocked to the bottom of his suburban soul and exclaimed, oh, rot. <laughs> the words, the manner were out of him before he could recall them. Durham, you're an Englishman. I'm another. Don't talk nonsense. I'm not offended because I know you don't mean it, but it's the only subject absolutely beyond the limit, as you know. It's the worst crime in the calendar and you must never mention it again. 
Durham, a rotten notion, really. This is, of course, his first reaction. Really terrible, given that uh, he, he had he had a sense of what he was for so many years. He's just, it, it takes for him a while to sink in that the man that he loved also loved him back. And definitely he makes amends. And another symbolic scene in the book is with, um, you know, a, sort of a Peter Pan-like scene where one of the lovers comes on the, uh, climbs up the window of the other. And so Morris does this with Clive. He climbs up his window one night and, and kisses him and then goes away and, and tells him that he loves him and then goes away. And this is the moment when they start his rela the, the relationship. Um, and then during the, the part where uh, he has this depression, what is interesting is that um, apart from the suicidal thoughts, he also has a, a bit of violent tendencies. And there is one scene where he harasses a young man. And, and this is interesting because I've also rarely seen this portrayed. It is not in intentional for him to harass him, but he sort of, uh, he, he feels so lonely that he misunderstands the signals of, of this man. And uh, I'm going to quote a bit because it was interesting and this was not in the film. So um, uh, he is, um, he's staying with, with Morris and his family. He is a guest in their house. Quote, I'm above pain panted Morris, not daring, in the attic over this room. If you want anything, all night alone, I always am. And th this is not the first time he makes this sort of a very subtle for our time, but, very, but these advances on, on the young man. And it says, Dickie, Dickie is the boy, Dickie's impulse was to bolt the door after him, but he dismissed it as unsoldierly. So he's clearly harassed, but the, the author knows it, but Morris doesn't. And when he once he realizes this, uh, the next morning he's terrified of what he has done, and and he, and he thinks, how how did I get from that nice and happy person that I was when I was with Clive? How did I get to this? And then quote, he caught sight of himself in the glass behind the counter. What a solid young citizen he looked! Quiet, honorable, prosperous, without vulgarity. On such does England rely. Was it conceivable that on Sunday last he had nearly assaulted a boy? <laughs> I, I, I really like this, the, the contrast, because this is the darkest part of his life. And it really shows even in this scene that, well, it, it doesn't really lead to an incident, but it is a moment when he does more soul searching. And, and, and this is when he decides to, to see the hypnotist. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't work, <laughs> not at all, uh, with a hypnotist. And then, um, then uh, he, he meets Alec, who, like I said, is very, very different from Clive. But in, in a sort of a cyclic way, we also have this kind of Peter Pan scene, but it is the other way around. Morris is the one who is in his room and he is alone and outside it is raining and he, he just... Um, he, he wants to feel the wind and the rain because he's really sad uh, because of Clive and his new wife. And uh, he, he opens the windows wide and he just um, 
he, he puts his head out in, in the rain and then he goes back. And then uh, he sees that the, someone was climbing through the wall and uh, it is Alec. They had already had a few interactions before, but Alec knew that, uh, knew about the relationship between him and Clive. Of course, as a servant, you get to see certain things. And he also had his sensibilities, so he was able to figure out. And so, so he knew that Morris was gay. And he comes up the window and he says, sir, was you calling out for me? I know, sir, I know, and touched him. And, and this is the moment when they, uh, as, it sh as it says in the book, and it is a nice euphemism that was very much in use at the time, they shared with each other. <laughs> so they, they do make love. And there is a great contrast between what um, uh, Alec, between how Clive was manifesting his emotion and the way that Alec does. And he sends him uh, a letter which is so straightforward and it is something that Clive would never say. He says, dear sir, let me share with you once before leaving old England if it is not asking too much. I long to talk with one of my arms around you, then place both arms around you and share with you. The above now seems sweeter to me than words can say. He's definitely not as well-spoken as Clive is, but he's so much more honest. Mm -hmm. Definitely. <laughs> and, and this is what makes um, um, Clive, uh, sorry, Morris, um, become really empowered. And, and he, once realizing that they love each other, uh, he wants to do all sorts of bold things that, again, Clive would never have dared to do. And it gives this empowering speech. He says to Alec, quote, we have to fight. All the world is against us. I'll come with you. I don't care. I'll see anyone, face anything. If they want to guess, let them. I'm fed up. It is a risk, but so is everything else. And we only live once. And this is really beautiful. And, and it is the, uh, the moment soon afterwards when they decide to, uh, to give up their jobs and their families and give up everything and just go away together and find some, some normal jobs. Because of course, Morris has to give everything up because he has his father's uh, uh, stock business. But he would give it up just to be with Alec. And interestingly, he goes to Clive after they make this decision. And he tells him, it is a, a, a bit malicious, you know, a bit of a revenge, but he comes to Clive and, and he tells him that um, I found someone, I, I met someone. And of course, Clive thinks it's a woman, <laughs> but and he says, that, oh, I'm happy for you that you were able to live to leave all that nonsense behind. Oh, wow. <laughs> no, it is your gamekeeper. <laughs> and we shared together in this room in your house while you were away. And this is the greatest revenge he could take on Clive because he, I, I, that is the moment when, when we feel sorry for Clive really because he doesn't really uh, show that he is hurt, but I, I, I'm really sure that he is. But he tells him something about Alec and Maury says, um, he gave up everything for me. I don't know if that is platonic of him, but this is what he did. 
So <laughs> this is a really nice comparison between Alec and Clive. What is more platonic? The fact that Clive was, you know, just saying, oh, I love you and we, we are friends and all, but just, you know, everything else comes first or the sacrifice, the actual sacrifice that Alec does in order to be with Morris. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it just seems like Clive's a talker. <laughs> yes. He doesn't actually do anything. He's not really a man of conviction, but he says he is. Yes, yes, that is very true. Um, maybe he was. Maybe he really was in his uh, teenage years, in his youth, but he was sort of defeated by life, you know, by responsibilities. That uh, rebelliousness was snuffed out. Hmm. Yeah, I can see why he doesn't end up with him. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yeah. And For the better. That's true. It is definitely better. Mm -hmm. And also about Clive, I, 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 I'm not really sure if I have time to quote uh, a few more things, but it's really uh, nice um, because also it, it, sh it sheds light on marriages in that time and especially between someone like Clive and someone like Anne, his wife, uh, who is a very, very naive uh, young woman, um, a quote, when he arrived in her room after marriage, she did not know what he wanted. Despite an elaborate education, no one had told her about sex. Clive was as considerate as possible, but he scared her terribly and felt and left feeling she hated him, but she did not. She welcomed him on future nights, but it was always without a word. He never saw her naked, nor she him. They ignored the reproductive and the digestive functions. To Clive, the actual deed of sex seemed unimaginative and best veiled in the night. Between men, it is inexcusable. Between man and woman, it may be practiced since nature and society approve, but never discussed nor vaunted. His ideal of marriage was temperate and graceful, like all of his ideals. Yeah, really explains Clive's uh, Clive's views on well, on on every kind of relationship and on life in general. He's very lukewarm. Yes, exactly. On on the one hand, he's very idealistic, but in actual practice, yeah, <laughs> he's indeed lukewarm. I don't think he's setting himself up for happiness. But then he has all these ideals that just can't be translated into reality sometimes. That is true. So if, if, if we have one tragic character in the book, it is certainly Clyde. Mm -hmm. In a he different way. Yeah. Yes, exactly. He, he is definitely unfulfilled. Uh, it is, uh, well, he does have a happy, sort of a happy marriage, but he, he never gets what, what he really wanted secretly. He, he hides himself from himself. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I think, unfortunately, I mean, compared to him, Mor Morris is the one who gets to express himself, right? And he ends up with someone who helps him to express himself. But if he had ended up with Clive, maybe that wouldn't have happened. Like, even if Clive did end up with Morris, they would probably both be suppressed. Yes, I know. I mean, the, the possible outcome was that they both married some women that they, well, did not really have any kind of relationship with, but they were too, uh, you know, too, too gentlemen-like to, to 
uh, I don't know, to, to argue with them or anything. They were too ladylike to uh, push them to have sex or anything. They would be happy that sex was not happening between them and they would just meet each other, but not do anything with each other either because they are gentlemen, you know? So this is what their life would have been for years and years because this was life was lukewarm. And then we have Alec on the complete opposite side of the spectrum and who is so full of, of fire. And uh, he also has this kind of naivety, you know, as we saw in the way that he was writing letters, but at the same time, when it comes to uh, rights and social class, he's extremely vocal. At one point, I promise this is the last quote, um, he, says, uh, he says this to Morris, I'm not your servant. I will not be treated as your servant. And I don't care if the world knows it. And then he talks about Clive's mother who uh, really mistreats him because she is she's not a mean person, but she has that arrogance that a lady was supposed to have with her servants, right? So even though he had been working for her for six months, she still does not know his name. And uh, quote, says Alec, what's your name? What's your name? Every day for six months, I come up to Clive's bloody front porch door for orders and his mother don't know my name. She's a bitch. I said to her, what's your name? Fuck your name. <laughs> I nearly did too. I wish I had to. Maurice, you wouldn't believe how servants get spoken to. It's too shocking for words. <laughs> so this is the kind of person that Alec is. So different from Clive. Yes, definitely. I think it's a really interesting contrast. Oh, at one point, when, when you were quoting the part about how he made a religion out of another boy, that sounds like Frankie. Does it? <laughs> I was reminded of that. I was like, oh, yeah, I remember the, the idea we had, like, in the AU, where he makes a statue out of Sam? <laughs> yes, I know. I told you that that part reminded Frankie very much. The one with the, the smut <laughs> that he was thinking of. The collection of dirty thoughts. And then the, the statue. <laughs> oh, my God. You know what? I think they need an Arda Yon in this book. Yeah, I know. This is what the book lacks. There is no Ardayan. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe Alec is a bit like Ardayan. I mean, Ardayan also would say, fuck you, because he, he's yeah, against I, tradition. <laughs> yeah, I think Alec would really like Ardayan because he's so much for the, um, the emancipation of the working classes and for equality and everything. So he would like to talk to Ardayan about this. <laughs> and not only... <laughs> Yes, and in the AU, like in Ingvar's AU, he would love how Ardayan is bisexual. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, I know. I know. And he even seduces Ingvar. Oh, yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Oh, and, and, and this leads me to the last point uh, in the book, uh, uh, in our discussion, which is how the book was uh, was conceived, how he got the inspiration, how Forster got the inspiration. And this is quite a lot. I mean, it, it involves a famous socialist superstar at the time. And because uh, Forster was uh, quite into, uh, in, into socialism and it shows in a lot of his works. And the inspiration for Morris actually came from a real life experience. Uh, so um, uh, before he had acted upon his attraction towards men, he 
met the very unconventional socialist philosopher Edward Carpenter, who was so unconventional that he actually lived with his boyfriend. And his boyfriend was a, a factory worker from Birmingham. And they were living together in a country house. And Forster went to visit them. So um, um, the boyfriend, uh, George Merrill, touched Forster's back. And I quote from uh, Forrester, George Merrill touched my backside gently and just above the buttocks. I believed he touched most people's. The sensation was unusual and I still remember it as I remembered the position of a long vanished tooth. It was as much psychological as physical. It seems to go straight through the small of my back into my ideas without involving my thoughts. So this is the flaming inspiration he has. And he goes back home and he writes Morris in, in one breath. He writes it, and I don't know, in, in a few months. Wow. So there was like a sexual inspiration to it. Yes, exactly. It was as much physical as it is psychological. It was in a way an awakening for him. And uh, he says about Alec when he discusses his characters, Alec is the touch on the back. So this is how he describes him. Mm -hmm. that the role that Alec has on Morris, the one that George Merrill had on him. And if we think about it, they are both working class men, very outspoken. Mm -hmm. They are. Yeah, that makes sense. And the socialist guy, I was just wondering, like he kind of reminds me of Arne Yon. He put these ideas into his head. <laughs> oh, yes, exactly. Yeah, and he was... Uh, he was really uh, adoring him because he, he had the way of life that uh, Forster himself would, a part of him would like to, to lead, but he would never have the guts. <laughs> and uh, we will talk about the socialist guy when we talk about Whitman because... Oh, he knows him? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yeah. Wow, they, they're all connected. <laughs> they, exactly. Uh, Edward Carpenter was the link between Forrester and Whitman who had never met. And, and I don't think what it, I don't know what they thought about each other. But Carpenter was the link between them because they both had a thing for him. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. We're talking about all of these people. Women are more spicy than a touch on the back. <laughs> <laughs> yes, we're going to be talking about Whitman in a future episode. Yes, yes. Yes, I, I, yes, I know. It's amazing. Yeah, and he, he influenced Eyolf, right? Yes. Oh, yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm. Yes. So in terms of the biggest influence on your characters, would you say Morris influenced your characters more, Walt Whitman or Dorian Gray? Oh, this is so difficult. <laughs> I, I, um, I think they, they influence different aspects of my stories and different aspects of my, my characters. Uh, Morris also influenced uh, the part where um, uh, sort of the relationship between Eolf and Geir and the part where they break up and where Eolf suffers so much. And this is very much influenced by this, as well as the moment when he and Ingvar break up. So the breakups were definitely inspired by Morris because mm -hmm. they were so emotionally described in the book and they really left a mark on me. And I, I, I thought that fit really well. So in this respect, I think it was Morris. I mean, in, in, in the way that I, I present the, uh, 
the feelings more honestly yeah i think it was in the slice of lifey parts of the of my stories it is morris in the philosophy it was whitman and in the style and the general mood which is a bit darker it was dorian gray Mm -hmm. and for iden it was definitely dorian gray yeah yeah (laughs) well and and morris too because of the platonic ideal which was more obvious in morris oh yeah that's true that's true yes Mm -hmm. yes and and we also see a lot of that in outlaws in elisar and morgo we see a lot of uh you know alec in morgo and i think clive in elisar (laughs) okay yeah yeah i see it too and yeah, I think Elisar, because of his religious background, is also kind of hesitant to make it physical, right? So that's another thing that makes them similar, him and Clive. Yes, exactly. But of course, uh, Clive and Alec would not be a good relationship. They would not work. But uh, Elisar and Murgu do because they are only a bit similar. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, thank you so much for this amazing book review you know we covered so much and we learned a lot about this and you know I really should watch the movie sometimes like the trailer was just beautiful and you know the story is just amazing you have you have to it is amazing I I would watch it like anytime it is one of those those films that I cannot get tired of this one and Harry Potter and things like that (laughs) it's a classic Yes, it is a classic. And I always cry when I see it because I, I cry. It doesn't matter if it's uh, if something is sad or not. I just cry when I like something. Otherwise, mm-hmm. it doesn't, you know, when something is sad, I have no problem. But if I really like something and it touches me, then I do. So. <laughs> well, me too. I actually cry a lot when I watch movies. So like, I, I'm kind of glad the theater is dark so no one can see it. <laughs> Oh, yeah, I know, right? Wow. Yeah, I'm just like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm just looking at my phone, but I'm like wiping away my tears. <laughs> yeah, you have to watch it and tell me if you cry. <laughs> okay, I think I will, because like the trailer, okay, I didn't make me cry, but I can sense that it could. <laughs> yeah, that is awesome. You have to tell me. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Goodbye, Bye. everyone.